On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to actually <laughs> dive into strategic theories. I know last week we were supposed to be beginning the strategic theories, and then I got really excited about some news that had went viral, and I ended up sharing that instead. But today we're going to jump back into the strategic theories. And today we're just going to kind of give a brief overview of kind of the general beliefs that people who practice under the umbrella of strategic theory have. Then we're going to, in the next few podcasts, dive more specifically into the three branches of the strategic theories, including the Mental Research Institute, or MRI, Haley's Strategic Theory, where kind of, I think, or at least I've told myself the name strategic comes from, but that could be completely incorrect. And <laughs> as I'm not a historian of some of these systems, and Milan Systemic, which I have personally always found to be very interesting. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Rains is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. Today we're going to be talking about an overview of the strategic theories. And we're going to start by discussing some of the main components of the theory, some of the main individuals involved in the theory overall. And then in the next couple of podcast episodes, we're going to dive into the three specific branches or ideologies under the umbrella of strategic theory, which is MRI, which we'll discuss a little bit more in depth, Haley Strategic, and Milan Systemic, which I have always found to be very interesting. Kind of the big idea or the main theme of all the strategic theories is what they call homeostasis. It's this belief that families are doing the best they can, but for some reason, they get stuck by maintaining a homeostasis in this kind of holding pattern or self-protective mode or safety mode. I always think of it in your computers back when you had MS-DOS, well, probably later than that, but when you had computers and you would get that like error message that like you had to start in safety mode, right? And because they're in the safety mode, they can't change as they should. And they also believe that families are resistant to therapists and their efforts to change them. And so I know on previous podcasts, I kind of talked about my own personal philosophy and methodology where I discuss everything that I'm doing. I'm very open and clear about exactly what I am doing in the therapy session, what techniques I'm utilizing, what interventions I'm attempting. And I do a lot of psychoeducation or teaching on those things. But that comes from a different school of thought. 
And I know I've shared when discussing that, that eventually I'm going to share a school of thought that is very different from that, where they do not share because they feel that if they share information about what they are doing in the therapy session, it will actually inform the client's resistance. And these are those therapies. This is the theory that holds to that. So they hide what they are thinking and doing to change the family. And the therapist takes on the responsibility for change, which is, again, very different from more modern or recent theories that are more solution-focused, client and therapists walking together down the path and gaining new knowledge, right? co-creating knowledge. This is very different from that. This The therapist takes responsibility for change, and the therapist is hiding or not revealing to the client what they are doing in the therapy session. And this leads to some pretty interesting interventions that might seem odd when you hear about them knowing that the client is not aware of what is happening in the therapy session, at least what the therapist is doing. And that's why I've always found these theories to be very interesting because they seem almost opposed to how I myself practice. So the MRI Institute, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, focuses on communication double binds. And we're going to talk in a bit about what communication double binds are and why they are important to this particular theory under the umbrella of strategic theories. And Jay Haley and his strategic focuses on problems as metaphors and Milan systemic therapists look for the family's inflexibility in moving through the developmental stages. And something that's an overall importance as well as homeostasis in this umbrella is communications theory. I know we've talked on a previous podcast about Virginia Satir and her kind of understanding of language and communication. And that comes from this MRI because she at one point was a part of it. And that experience, at least to my understanding, helped inform her beliefs about the importance of communication. And they held that there are seven fundamental rules of communication. And so first, all behavior is communicated at some level. So no matter what the behavior is, whether it's spoken or not, there is communication at some level. Also, they believe that communication has a report at a command level. I know I always got these two things confused, whether I was being quizzed on them in school or for the national examination. It's just, for some reason, I just always got these two mixed up. But all communication has a report and a command. And we're going to talk a little bit more later on what exactly that means. Number three, all behavior must be considered in the totality of its context. So all behavior, or communication in this regard, because remember, all behavior is communicated, must be considered in total context. We tend to do the opposite often. We hone in on the moment and get really specific with language, and sometimes we miss the total context in which things are being spoken. And I can think of many examples of where I've done this, where I've taken something out of context, to use a very popular colloquialism. I've taken something out of context, and that's kind of where some of this comes into play. Something else they believe is all systems maintain homeostasis by specific rules which balance each other. And this is also important as we get into the more 
practicality of some of these types of therapy to see this played out that they believe that all systems maintain homeostasis by rules. And that's going to be very important as we go on. Another thing they believed was relationships are either symmetrical or equal or complementary, meaning they are opposite or unequal. They believe that each observer interprets their own reality from behavior. And that's something that's really in-depth. Literally spend a year's worth of podcasts going through each one of these. And right now I'm just trying to get them out for you to think about. And we're going to kind of touch on them as we get further in. But we're not going to go into to depth just because we would never have enough time. When I start discussing the Mental Research Institute and kind of what they try to take on, what their lofty goal, and I think that's an understatement, of what they were attempting to do is so profound and so massive that the stuff that came from it itself is also profound and massive. So we're just not going to have the time to go through all of it. And kind of another thing they believed, which is number seven, is problems are maintained by communication and feedback loops that cause the family to get stuck in patterns that are dysfunctional, harmful, unhealthy. People use lots of terms to describe them. And they're going to talk a lot about first and second order change. And second order change is the thing they're most interested in. And it basically represents a shift in thinking and a shift in the rules within a system. It's kind of like changing trajectory and plotting a new course for behavior and then the feedback. And this gets really technical. I will give an illustration as we get into MRI about how they envision this. It's it's a very simple thing that's in everybody's homes, most likely, that they can at least connect with to help them understand kind of the complexity because we're going to get into a lot of systems theory and cybernetics and first and second order change. But just know that second order change is, is what they're looking for. And the therapists themselves cannot do anything. Like they cannot intervene in any way to cause second order change. All they can do is cause first order change, which then has the potential to cause second order change. And we're going to get into all that. We're just really kind of going over an overview right now. And I know this is very technical because the next two theories, strategic and structural, they have a lot of depth. They have a lot of writings about them. They have a lot of studies. There's just a lot of information. They're very informed systems of thought. So that's kind of the generics an overview of some just of the main pieces of the strategic theories that are very similar across each one of the three. So now we're going to move on to talking about some of the key players in these theories. Gregory Batson was one of the key proponents of these theories. And he kind of started out with the Mental Research Institute. And he was an anthropologist, like a social scientist, a linguist, He has like an entire big long list of things that he did. He was also a cyberneticist. And a lot of these fields connected in and out of each other. And while he was in Palo Alto, California, which is where MRI is, he and his colleagues developed the theory of a double bind when dealing with schizophrenia. And a double bind in and of itself is complex. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it when we get into MRI. And so kind of what they saw a double bind was a dilemma in communication in which... 
an individual or a group receive two or more conflicting messages. And especially within families, this could be emotionally distressing because it created a situation in which a successful response to one message resulted in the failed response to the other and vice versa. And such a person responding would automatically be perceived as wrong no matter how they responded. Kind of like a no-win situation. And then the double bind prevented the person from either resolving the underlying dilemma or opting out of the situation. So they could not remove themselves either. So they had to make a choice. No matter which choice they made, they were going to be seen as wrong. And they believed that this was one of the origins of schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so Gregory Bateson, Don D. Jackson, John Weakland, Jay Haley, Virginia Satir, there's a lot of names that were involved in MRI. And their goals were lofty. And I've actually heard several different origin stories as to what they were seeking to do. But the one I like the most, the one I'm going to go with, is that they were seeking to quantify human behavior. Pretty lofty. <laughs> if you've lived in a family, if you've interacted with people whatsoever, quantifying all human behavior, that's 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 legit, right? That's, that's I don't I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. It's awesome. Congratulations. I mean, that's you know, some people wanted to go to the moon, some people wanted to leave our galaxy. They wanted to quantify all human behavior. Um I don't think they did it, unfortunately. Uh, I think it was just too complex. But their work provided profound information in many different fields. And they kind of helped set a trend that would kind of go out and have impact on all the therapists that are currently being trained in the United States currently. So if you are a therapist, if you are a counselor, and you are training in the United States of America to be licensed to provide therapy or counseling services, you are going to be impacted by their work. It's going to be part of how you practice. It's going to inform how you practice, at the very least. And so that's kind of what they sought out to do. And yet all this other information came from that. And it was interesting because there was, and it's interesting because I was reading an article about how it was the place in like the 60s where anybody who wanted to be on the cutting edge of psychotherapy went there. And it was a place of experimentation, a place of innovation. And, you know, some of the, like I said, some of the big names were Virginia Sedir, but there was also others, Salvador Mnuchin, and we're going to talk about him when we move on to the next set of theories. Irvin Yalom, who is known as the father of group psychotherapy. Chloe Madonnas. So just a ton of huge names. They would actually go on oftentimes to work in their own particular fields of therapy and bring in some of what they learned from there. And so there's going to be a lot of good information in these theories that we're going to talk about. But I'm going to kind of stop for there just because that's already been a lot of information. And as we move in, these are going to be some of the theories that are going to have a lot of information. So I hope you enjoy the content that you're hearing. I know some of these have been a little bit more intense, but I ask that you bear with and continue to listen because there's a lot of interesting things that can come from it, especially as we start to dive into double binds 
first and second order change, paradoxes, homeostasis, circular questioning, neutral stances. There's just so much information that we're going to get to that will definitely both entertain, educate, and provide understanding of how a lot of therapists and counselors have been informed, especially if they're doing marriage or family therapy, how they have been informed to see clients, to see the world, to see therapy. So remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated and maybe you are, but you're not alone.